good, good morning, Lake Hills Church. So, so good to be worshiping today with you, whether you're in the room or online. Today, God has got a special word for us as a church family from our co-director of Next Gen Ministries, Jordan McDaniel. Now, Jordan is a great story. He came to us really through marriage as he and Kaylee began dating and ultimately were called together into marriage. But Jordan has a unique calling on his life. He's a seminary student trying to finish up his seminary studies this coming year and actually an incredible Bible scholar. So I wanna ask you if you'll join me and give a crazy in-house welcome to one of our own, Jordan McDaniel. Hello guys. How's it going, you guys? Man, I'm excited to be here, especially on this week, the week right before VBS. And I don't know about you guys, but if seeing this stage didn't get you guys excited for VBS, like I don't know what will, because I came out here and I was like, oh, wait, I have to talk. I just kind of want to look at it all. But I'm so excited. This is my first VBS. If you don't know, I like, like Max said, I'm, I'm still pretty new here. Uh, and so I thought it'd be good, this is the first time that I've been up in front of you to give you a little bit about myself. I want to show you a picture, uh, I'm married to Kaylee, but I want to show you a picture of my wider family. Um, this is my family, I think we have a picture, yeah, there we are. Uh, fun fact, this was taken in the Lake Hills parking lot. Um, so that's a good time, but this is my family and I love my family, I've come from a good family. Uh, there are four of us siblings, three of us are married now, so we're in a cool season where we're growing as a family, but there's something that you need to know about my family if you wanna understand me and you wanna understand who they are and where I come from. My family has a very particular kind of love language. It's a love language that some families have, but not all families do, but mine definitely does. And that love language is pranks. Is there anybody else in here who's from a pranking family? Yeah, a couple of you guys. Here's the thing. Like, if you grow up in a pranking environment, there's a couple things that you need to know. There are rules you need to have in order to survive. The, the first rule is if someone comes up to you and says, close your eyes. I have a surprise. Don't close your eyes. That's a terrible idea. And here's the second rule, and this one's important. And if you guys get nothing out of the sermon today, it's this. If you're in a pranking environment, and someone comes up to you unsolicited and offers you a smoothie. Under no circumstances should you drink that smoothie. Absolutely not. I don't care how many vitamins they said they put in it or it's a cool mix of pineapple and kale and spinach. I don't care. The truth is that smoothie has probably been tampered with beyond belief and you under no circumstances can drink it. But as you're growing through, as you're growing up, you learn these rules and not only do you survive in a pranking environment, you begin to thrive and you begin to develop your own resume of pranks. And so from an early age, I became invested in building my pranking resume, and I had one specialty, a prank that I did over and over and over again that I absolutely loved, and it was toilet papering people's houses. I loved it. I toilet papered my first house when I was in fourth grade, and I never looked back. If I'm being honest with you, um, I have toilet papered my own house. 
That is how much I love toilet papering. Um, and I know what you're thinking. Thank goodness this is the guy who's teaching our students. If it makes you feel any better, I'm on a break like Michael Jordan in the 90s. I'm focusing on other things. I could be back, who knows. Um, but when I hit high school, I really hit my toilet papering stride. I found others who were like me, who liked toilet papering. We formed a crew, and all throughout high school, about once a month or once every two months, we got together, we drove to HEB, we bought toilet paper, and then we went to a friend's house. It was always a friend. It was always someone we knew well, and we toilet papered their house. And I don't want to brag, but we never got caught. It was one of those situations where everyone in school like knew it was us, but they couldn't prove it was us. And so we had this resume that was perfect. And towards the end of high school, we had built it and we were proud of it. And it was the end of summer and half of our crew had just graduated and were about to go to college. And so we decided we know that our time is coming to an end. We're going to do one final job. And it's going to be the biggest job that we've done. So we all piled into my truck. We drove to HEB and we bought... 250 rolls of toilet paper. Now, to put that in perspective for you guys, that is enough toilet paper to last the average person over two and a half years. And if you're wondering, is Googling how much toilet paper we use on average the weirdest thing you've Googled during a sermon prep? It is, but I wanted you guys to know to have perspective, 250. And so we bought it, we put it in my truck, we all piled in, in the middle of the night, we drove to my friend Trevor's house. And now we chose Trevor as our final mark because he's a good guy, he was close to us, uh, and a lot of friends in our crew, but also because his front yard had a ton of trees. It was the perfect canvas for our final masterpiece. And so we parked about a quarter mile away from his house and we began walking and we we're like, hey, just in case we get caught, we need to have an exit plan. And we're like, okay, what we'll do is we'll all just book it as fast as we can to my truck and drive away and hope he didn't see our faces. And we're like, okay, that's a good idea. So we get there and we start. And I don't know if you know this, it takes a long time to do 250 rolls of toilet paper, but we were wrapping up. I remember looking back and I saw there were only two left. 248 rolls of toilet paper have been used to create a masterpiece. His entire yard was white. It was like Christmas in July. And I went back to finish the job and I leaned over to pick up roll 249 and I heard a shout. And I looked back and standing in the doorway of his house was Trevor. But I knew the plan, I didn't panic. I threw down roll 249 and I booked it as fast as I could, made it to my truck, looked over and saw my friend Grant. We were there together, but no one else was. Everyone had completely forgot the plan and had literally just like gone into the woods to hide. And so now Grant and I were left with the dilemma of like, okay, we either have to abandon our friends in the woods in the middle of the night or risk getting caught. Now Grant and I, I'm proud to say are good people, so we abandoned our, I'm just joking. <laughs> so we decided we were going to stay, but we didn't just want to stand out in the middle of nowhere, so we came up with a plan which seemed like a good idea at the time, and that was to hide under the truck. And so we're laying under the truck, and a few moments later, we hear footsteps approaching, jogging towards us, and I peek out, hoping it was a member of our crew, and immediately snap back because it wasn't. You know who it was? It was Trevor. 
and no joke, you guys, he leaned up against the truck that we are hiding underneath. And then he pulls out his phone, and this is, we can't see it, we can only hear it. We hear him say, hey dad, I think I found their car. I'm gonna wait here until they get back. And Grant and I look, under, look at each other and we're like, oh no, what is going to happen? And so no joke, you guys, for 15 minutes, Trevor is leaning up against the car within reaching distance of us and has no idea we're there. 15 minutes later, we hear another car pull up. The window rolls down, and it's Trevor's dad. And he says, Trevor, it's getting late. You need to come inside soon, and you'll just have to pick it up tomorrow. Grant and I look at each other, and we're like, the light at the end of the tunnel. We've made it. Our perfect resume is going to stay intact. How fantastic is this? And Trevor's like, I know that. Can I just have a few more minutes? And the dad says, okay, but you need to be in in five minutes. And he says, okay. Drives away. Start to breathe a little bit. Okay, we might get through this. But then the car pulls up again, rolls the window down. The dad says, Trevor, they're under the truck. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that moment that my heart fell through my chest. Our perfect plan has now fell through. It did not. And we have to army crawl of shame out from underneath the truck. And we stand up and Trevor and his dad are laughing at us. And they decide that the only way to make it right is that if Grant and I come back at 6 a.m. the ne- uh, It's just the middle of the night. At 6 a.m. the next morning and pick up all 248 rolls of toilet paper. Oh my gosh, it was messy. It was terrible, and it was all because we were so close, but it just did not go according to plan. It all fell apart. Now we all have stories like this, stories in our lives where we've thrown ourselves into something with as much as we possibly can, whether it's a relationship, whether it's business, whether it's school or athletics or whatever it is, we've thrown ourselves into it only for it not to go according to plan to such a degree that it feels like the floor has been ripped out from under us. And now we're left wondering, we're confused, we're lost, we're hurt. Or maybe we have stories, these messy stories where we've been hurt or broken or betrayed by someone we love, someone we care about, someone we trust. We have these messy stories in our life. We have stories when we enter into situations and the worst parts of us for some reason are at the wheel and we hurt those we love. We betray those we love. We have these messy stories. We all do. And if you're anything like me, you come to church and you hear the story that God has been telling. You read the Bible and you hear what God has been doing in the world. You hear that God has been telling a story from the beginning of time. And it's about love and it's about redemption and reconciliation and radical hospitality and home. And if you're anything like me, you look at the story and everything inside of you wants to be a part of it. I want to take part in what God is doing in the world, but then I think about my messy stories. I think about the stories where I did not live up to my own expectations. I think about the stories that I'm ashamed of, and if you're anything like me, I wonder, do these two fit together? Can my messy stories, do they really matter to the story that God has been telling? And if you're like me, maybe you feel that tension. When you look at what God is doing in the world and then you look at the messiness of our lives, you might feel that, do they fit? 
Can these two things coexist at the same time? If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the story God has been telling in the world. And we've been talking about the family with which God is telling that story. We talked about Abraham, who God chose to be the chosen people. He's going to raise up through Abraham a family that is going to go out and bless the whole world. In other words, what we learn is that God is telling a story in the world, and it's about blessing, and it's through this family that he's going to do it. The story We've learned about Abraham, how he was faithful to carry on that purpose. We've learned about Isaac. And if you were with us last week, we've learned about Jacob, the new member, the new character of the story, the new person to carry on God's blessing in the world, right? And Mike, if you haven't heard Mike's sermon from last week, you should. It's awesome. But he did such an incredible job of introing us into who this person Jacob is. And Jacob makes me feel good because if there's anyone whose story is messy in the Bible, it's Jacob's. Because Jacob is a part of the story, but everything he has, we learned last week, he gains through deception. He's the younger brother. He has an older brother named Esau who by natural birthright should be the next character in God's story. But what Jacob does is he deceives his brother and he deceives his father in such a way that Jacob receives that blessing and now he's the one who's gonna carry out God's story in the world. His story is messy. And naturally, this makes Esau upset. I mean, of course it would, right? This is a big deal. So upset that Esau wants to kill Jacob. This is how Jacob's story starts. It's a rough start. It's a messy start. And so Jacob is running for his life. With everything that he has, Jacob is running for his life, and he's running to the only place that he knows that he can be safe, and that is his uncle's house, because his uncle is family, and his family will protect him, and so he's running to his uncle Laban's house, and not only will his family protect him, but word on the street is Laban has two daughters, and one of them is pretty cute. And so... He's running, and he approaches Laban's house and the story we're going to talk about today. And as he walks up to Laban's house, he begins to greet workers around. And while he's greeting them, he has this moment. It's a romantic story. We're about to enter into, cast your minds into a like romantic comedy mode with me, if you will. So here's the story. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 29 today. You can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have them... Um, it's going to be on the screen right here. Genesis 29, starting in verse 9. Laban's house, Jacob is there. It says this. While Jacob was speaking with them, that's the shepherds, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came in, came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. So what happens is we have this moment where Jacob is running for his life, and then he sees the love of his life, and automatically he's fallen for her. And so he goes, and he does. He pulls a move. He goes and waters her sheep. How kind. How gentlemanly. And right after that, boom, plants one on her. And apparently she's into it. But then afterwards, somehow, he just like weeps, crying. And I do have to say, I don't know if you guys have ever, after your first kiss, just like 
bawled your eyes out. It just doesn't feel like a good move, but for some reason it works on Rachel. And he tells Rachel, like, I'm your father's kinsman, which is in that time, a way of saying, me and you are meant to be together. We can be together. And she's excited. And so she runs to tell Laban because she's just met this man who's sensitive and touch with his feelings. He kissed her so passionately and then cried. How exciting is that? And so she runs to Laban, her dad. And Jacob is behind her and he's walking. And he's decided already he wants to marry this woman the love of his life. He's decided. He's set. And so he meets with Laban, and we find this. Picking up in verse 16. Now Laban, who's Jacob's uncle, had two daughters. The older, the name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. Now this is an idiom for like unattractive. Like Leah is not attractive, is essentially what people think. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Have a home with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And this part is so romantic and fun. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So he made this plan. He's in love, and he's willing to struggle for it. He struggles for seven years in order to marry the love of his life. It's very romantic comedy, right? And so he does it, and it goes by like that because he's so filled with love for this woman. And now it's time for the wedding. Seven long years he's been waiting to marry this girl. Kaylee and I were engaged for five months, and I can say it felt like seven years. But this guy, like, actually seven years. It's finally here. All the struggle has led up to this point. This woman who's going to be with Jacob and carry on God's blessing in the world. It's all fitting in the story that God is telling, right? The story of blessing. It's going to fit right in. And it's wedding day. And then this happens. Jacob is so excited that it's wedding day that he is not a very observant on it. They don't know why. Maybe he was just having a good time. But when he wakes up after his wedding day, he looks over at Rachel, and she's not the same. She's not what he expected, because what's happened is Laban has tricked Jacob into marrying Leah, the older sister, with weak eyes. And now let's join as we go back to Scripture, starting in verse 25. And in the morning after the wedding, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not done so in our country to give you the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So the story all was going on track, right? Everything was going right. He'd met the love of his life. She was going to join him in God's story. It fit. And then all of a sudden, it gets messy, the story becomes messy. It doesn't go according to plan. And it ends in a place that is brutal because no one is happy except for Laban, who's the bad guy. 
He gets an extra seven years of work, but now Jacob is stuck being married to a woman he does not love. Now Rachel is stuck in a marriage where she has to share her husband with her sister, and it was never supposed to be that way. And Leah is stuck in a marriage where she is not loved, obviously. Her husband loves someone more than her. Can you imagine what that would feel like? The story gets messy real fast. My entire life, when we would tell this story, it would always end here. And I would struggle because it's like, what? This is just how it's supposed to end? How does this fit in what God is doing? The romantic story of Jacob and Leah has come to a screeching halt. Or Jacob and Rachel has come to a screeching halt. And now we're stuck in a place where no one except the bad guy is happening. And I ask questions like, why didn't God show up? If you didn't notice, God is entirely voiceless up to this point in the story. It's messy. And then I think about my own life, and I think about my own stories that are messy, my own stories that are broken, and I compare them to this story, and I'm like, if these people can't figure out how to walk in a messy story, how am I going to? If these people can't figure out how to incorporate the messiness, if these people don't know whether their messy stories matter to the story that God is telling, how am I going to be able to do it? So as I've studied, as I've read, I've gotten to a place where I've asked the question of, God, when are you going to show up? Is there anyone in this story who's going to stand up in courage and boldness in the middle of the messiness and show us how to walk? My entire life, the story has always ended here. But it turns out the Bible keeps going. I don't know if you do that. The Bible tends to do that. It tends to kind of just keep going. And so this week I've read and I realize that this is not the end of the story. In fact, someone does step up and it's the person that we least expect. The person who up to this point has been entirely voiceless in this story, who has been given to someone who does not love her. She is the one who steps up and shows us how to live in messy situations. Let's read together starting in verse Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me a son, and she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son. And this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. I love this story. It's brilliant. It's the one who we least expect, who God speaks and moves on behalf of. And what we learn as we walk through the Bible, that it's always the ones we least expect, that show us what it looks like to walk in step with God. And so what God does is he sees Leah, who has been voiceless, who has been given to a man who does not love her, and he stands up for her and opens her womb, and then Leah goes on a birthing spree. 
Four sons, back to back to back to back. Boom, 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 boom. And she has the first son, and she says, now the Lord has seen me in my affliction. And so she named him Reuben. Reuben means I have been seen. Now I have a son. All of Leah's sons go on to become the leaders of the tribes of Israel who play a major part in the story of God. Now, if you can imagine you're a member of the tribe of Reuben, whenever you thought about your forefather, you would remember about how your foremother, Leah, stood up in the middle of a messy situation and said, God has seen me even here. She has another son who's named Simeon. And she says, because God has heard me, I have named him Simeon. Simeon means to hear. It comes from the Hebrew word shema. It means to hear. It means to appropriate. And so what she's saying is, even in the middle of this messy story, God has heard my cry. He has heard that I'm afflicted. And so now if you can imagine, for the rest of time, members of the tribe of Simeon, whenever they thought of their forefather, they would remember the way Leah stood up in a messy situation and said, God has heard me. She has another son named Levi. She says, hopefully this time my husband will be attached to me. It's heartbreaking to read. But it also carries the connotation that it is because God has attached God's self to her that she is able to make that prayer. So for the rest of time, members of the tribe of Levi, whenever they would think of their forefather, they would remember the way their mother, Leah, stood up in a messy situation, in a situation that didn't go to plan, and said, God has still attached myself to me even now. And then she has a fourth son, Judah. And she says, this time I will praise the Lord. This is the first time in the Bible anyone has used that word for praise. Literally in the middle of a messy situation, a broken situation, Willie has been overlooked unloved, did not fit, did not have a place to live, like did not have a place to belong, she stands up and says, even here, I am going to praise the Lord and show everyone what that looks like. This is the first time anyone has used this word for praise in the Bible. I've been wrestling with this story, wondering do my messy stories matter to the story of God? The story God has been telling and what Leah does here is so courageous. What Leah does here is so powerful. Can you feel the strength of the one who was overlooked? She stands up and she says, no, I am going to claim that my story, my messy story fits 
in the story of God. I am going to claim that my story matters to what God is doing. Even if it's messy, even if it's broken, even if it's been overlooked, I am going to claim, I am going to name that my story matters to the story of God. And the people that descended from Leah are some of the greatest heroes of faith that we have. People like Moses was a direct descendant of Leah. People like David were a direct descendant of Leah. And Jesus was a son of the woman who stood up in a messy place and knew that our stories matter to the story. If there's anything inside of you today that says, okay, yeah, but you don't know how messy my story is to matter, to belong, to have a place in what God is doing. What we learn from Leah is that even in the messiest situations, even in the most broken situation, God sees us and God hears us and God attaches God's self to us and God is still worthy to be praised because our stories matter to the story. And then Leah takes it a step further. Not only do our stories matter, but they're worth remembering. They're worth sharing for the rest of time when we remember Reuben when we remember Simeon, when we remember Levi, when we remember Judah, we remember the messy story of the one who stood up in a broken situation and claimed that this story still matters to God. It still fits with what God is doing. In the last few months since I've been here, I've had the pleasure of sitting with some of you and hearing those stories. And what a pleasure it's been to hear the messy stories and the broken stories. I'm reminded of God's faithfulness. I'm reminded of God's sight, of God's hearing our cry and how God moves in our life. And man, if you guys knew, and I'm I'm sure so many of you do, the stories that are in this room right now. What if we became the kind of people who intentionally shared our messy stories with the world? What if we became the kind of people who intentionally went out and heard the stories of the people we're sitting with, the people who are different than us, the people who think differently than us, but sit in the same room? If we intentionally heard their stories and we told ours all to remind ourselves and to stand up in Leah's place and claim that even in the messiness, God is still here, what would it look like if this week we intentionally learned someone's story, the messy stories? What would it look like if this week we intentionally told ours if we stood in the place of Leah 
and said, our messy stories matter to the story of hope and redemption and life and love and home and radical hospitality of God. A few thousand years after Leah, a son of Leah, a member of the tribe of Judah was born in a cave. Jesus. And what Jesus' life tells us is that God's story has room for us. That God is willing to do anything it takes, even going to the cross to show us that we have a place in the story that God is telling. What Jesus' life does is offers to us, no matter how messy our story is, to take part in the greatest story that has ever been told. Jesus stands in the place of Leah when he moves into the cross and embraces the messiness of death and sin and says, even this somehow fits and will bring about redemption and hope and life in the world, Jesus then offers that to us. To take part, no matter how messy our stories are, to join in in the story that God is telling. If there's anyone in here tonight who has never said yes to that invitation. Whether it's for whatever reason, if there's anything inside of you that says my story is too messy to fit, to matter. Jesus offers us the invitation to take part in the ongoing redemptive story that is happening the world then all we have to do is say yes and so if you're sitting here in this room and there's something inside of you that is stirring I want to be a part of that I'd encourage you to for everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes and if you're sitting here and you want to, for the first time, say yes to the transformative grace and love to take part in the story of God that is redeeming all around us, pray a prayer like this. Dear Jesus, I need you. I believe that even my messy story matters to the story that you are telling in the world. I accept your invitation. I make you the Lord over my life. I join your story. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for including me. My life is yours. Now with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, if this is the first time you prayed that prayer, I just want you to raise your hand. All eyes bowed, all eyes closed. 
want everyone to look up, put your hands together and say, welcome home.